when I was asked to give a seminar in this series, I rather rashly agreed to, um, and even more rashly agreed to uh, lead something on the subject of scarce resources, about which I know really rather little. Um, so the, the purpose of this is very much to be a seminar trying to provoke some discussion. It is certainly not a lecture because I'm not an authority in this area. Um, it comes with, within the umbrella of is the, is the planet full. Um, I, I think I should let you know where I come from on that. I think that's pretty obvious. Yes. Okay, so we can all go home. Um, um, that, you know, that's where I'm coming from. Um, okay, wh why do I take that view? Because of some of the things that um, might come up in the, in the following slides. So uh, I'm going to be talking about issues related to scarce resources. A lot of that's the problems, but I would like to look a bit at the solutions as well, because we don't just want to become depressed. Um, it's about population. Is the planet full? I presume we mean full of humans. Um, so very vague plot of population against time, deliberately with no scales on, although I suppose we've just been given that, you know, in 2000, uh, beginning of November 2011, here we are at precisely 7 billion, apparently. Um, and uh, the population is increasing, we know that. It's increasing perhaps not as fast these days as it has been at some times in the, in the past. Uh, what, what do we have in the future? I'll be deliberately very vague about this scale, but as I see it, there are uh, two broad possibilities. One is that we can go into a resource-limited mode um, in which population is restricted by the resources available. Um, and that seems to me to be a rather unhappy mode because uh, if there are those restrictions... Um, then, well, human beings don't have a very good record of resolving these things peaceably. And, and that, to me, seems to be a rather worrying sort of future. Or there's the sort of utopian mode in which we arrive at some um, stable population. Maybe it's round about where we are now, maybe it's a bit lower, but we, we manage to control things in such a way that we're not resource-limited. And um, I labelled that utopia until a couple of days ago, for some reason, is, how many people have read H.G. Wells' um, The Time Machine? Uh, I can strongly recommend it. I just read it a couple of days ago, and I'm not so sure now about labelling this utopia, because actually that, that's a, it's a fascinating story in which paints a picture of the decline of humanity because of, uh, uh, you know, this, this stable population becomes really, uh, well, it all gets rather boring, and, and, and mankind becomes... Uh, diminished. So let's not get, get into that. But uh, there are other scenarios. Um, of course, you know, there's the one beloved of, of Hollywood in which something disastrous happens and then we get some post-apocalyptic future. But uh, let's not go into that. So I think this is the background. Okay, I'd like to sort of set the time units. And the time unit I'd like to, to work on is one Oxford College. I come from a typical Oxford College. It celebrated its 500th anniversary um, uh, three years ago. Um, and I don't want to be thinking of the fact that that college is already you know, well into its second half. 
um, or that Oxford University is well into its second half. I think we like to think of a reasonably long future. And, and so the unit is you know, about 500 years. People talking about sustainability over the life of a parliament or a few decades towards the end of the century or whatever, I think are thinking far too short term. Uh, 500 years seems to me a sort of reasonable unit to be thinking about for uh, sustainability. So that's, that's the scale on which I'd like to think. And let's just put that in a little bit of context. Um, we're not talking about climate change today. That's a different topic, very interesting topic. But just to be able to set the scale, this is a plot of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere over the last half a million years, just about um, 400,000 years. Uh, and it goes up and down between about uh, 280 parts per million, well, 180 to 280 parts per million. The, the low points are the ice ages, the higher points are the interglacials. And uh, recently something pretty dramatic has been happening. Uh, it, we're now up at about 390 parts per million. Um, and the 500 years I've talked about, which is quite a long time, is a little bit less than one pixel width on the computer. It's less than the thickness of the vertical line. All that vertical line, of course, has happened in the last 50 years. So the, the vertical line is drawn much too fat. Uh, roughly speaking, the first emergence of anything that remotely resembles a city is about here on this plot. Um, so 500 years is actually an astonishingly short time when you begin to look at what's happening over a slightly longer time scale. That is half a million years. That half million years is much less than one pixel on this plot, which is the geological time scale. I'm sorry about the fact that it's in Norwegian, but it was the only nice version of this that, uh, that I could download from the web. Um, okay, this is the interesting bit of geology. Uh, if you like, and that's about 500 million years. Um, and so, you know, our half million years that we were previously interested in was, was, is all compressed over here. This is where coal and oil comes from. And we're talking about, you know, using that up within, um, you know, a millionth of this time scale. It's an interesting thought. <laughs> Um, that, by the way, is a sort of interesting bit of, of the Earth's history. It's only, that itself is only a little bit of Earth's history, which goes back sort of uh, four billion years or so. So I think it is important to look at timescales. So what I like, the, the message I want you to get there is that in talking about sustainability over 500 years, we're talking about something very, very tiny. We're not talking about a long period. We're talking about a tiny, tiny little period. Um, okay, let's, let's move on now to resources. Um, there's a lot of talk about renewable resources and non-renewable -re resources, and I think this is something we, we just might come to later in discussion. I think it's quite useful to think about which resources are renewable or non-renewable, and if they're non-renewable, <laughs> Are they so abundant that they may as well be renewable, which would put them over here, or are they rather scarce? 
And we use them for different things. Now, I've divided this uh, roughly into four categories. Um, energy, which is the area that I have most interest. Materials that, broadly speaking, we use for construction in its very widest sense. So making aeroplanes, I would call construction. Um, food and water to sustain us. And then specialized use, um, the, the sort of uh, you know, interesting things that are in the heart of mobile phones and things like that. Um, so I, I don't want to go through every item in, in this diagram, but I think it's worth just thinking about where the resources that we need sit. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at food and water, uh, all of these are renewable. You know, we don't actually eat anything that is non-renewable. We, we eat animals and plants and, and we drink water and there's, there's plenty of that. It's all, all recycled. In order for agriculture to work, we need certain materials, modern agriculture to work, we need certain materials like phosphates. They are sitting there much closer to the, um, to what, beginning to get towards the scarcer end of the non-renewable range. Um, energy, yes, there are renewable technologies and there are others that are non-renewable. We like to think of uh, nuclear power perhaps as uh, a renewable technology, but actually, no, you know, there's not all that much uranium around. It's, it's over here, I would say, in, in this range. Gas and oil are well over towards this range. Uh, fusion might be over here in the renewable range, but um, I've put that in red because I'm not sure it's going to work. Certainly doesn't, nobody's got it to work on a reasonable scale yet. Geothermal, very often thought of as a renewable technology. Actually, it's not. You can think of it as heat mining. Um, it's, it's abundant, but it's not entirely renewable. And I, I won't go through the rest, but I think it's worth thinking about where things sit on this sort of scale. OK, what I'd like to do, really, to, for uh, the rest of my half of the, the talk is, is to talk about energy, which is the area that uh, I'm most interested in. And actually, it's quite interesting, just going back to this, if you can crack the energy problem, you can throw energy at a lot of the other problems. So for instance, whether or not you regard uh, some of these materials as being scarce or abundant, to a certain extent, depends on how much energy you're prepared to, to extract them. Uh, so energy is central to an awful lot of these, these problems. Uh, this is a plot of UK oil and gas production over the last 20 years. They're on very different scales. One is in millions of tons, the other is in, in billions of cubic meters, but actually they, they plot them on the same graph. Uh, so the, the red one's oil, the blue one's gas, um, and the ones with, with the, the, the points on are the actual produ production from uh, the North Sea and, to a lesser extent, from the Irish Sea. Um, and the thin red lines are what we've actually used. So if we just concentrate on oil, you can see that we were net exporters of oil for a while. We returned to being importers of oil around about 2005. A little bit of decline of use of oil. I'm not quite sure what's causing this. There is some talk that... Uh, the price of, of oil is beginning to have an effect on the market. Um, but here is the amount that we, we have to uh, import, net, net import 
of um, oil and now of, of gas. In fact, you can see there's a bigger gap here on gas. So uh, when people tell you that, oh, you know, we've got lots of North Sea oil and, uh, and gas left, don't you believe it? Uh, actually, we passed the peak, you know, peak oil, we passed it more than 10 years ago. We are now down to the dregs of North Sea oil and gas. Um, so um, we're reliant on, on uh, increasingly reliant on imports. And uh, that's not good for the economy, and it's, it's not good for um, sustainability of the UK in all sorts of ways. Um, just before going into that in a little bit more detail, once you start looking at these things, you have to uh, use words in a slightly more specialised way. And there's a certain vocabulary that gets used when talking about resources and reserves of resources. And it's actually different in different sectors of the industry. Um, and without labouring it too much, the oil industry tends to talk about the, the three Ps, proven reserves, probable reserves, and possible reserves. Um, and just going into a little bit more detail, for instance, proven reserves reasonably certain to be producible using current technology at current prices. Now, that hides an awful lot. Um, probable reserves, again, current or likely technology, but again at current prices. And then possible, uh, you know, it's getting e even uh, a little bit more woolly. In the, uh, the, the minerals business, they tend to use slightly uh, different terminology make a distinction between reserves and resources. Um, and again, a bit of a, a hierarchy. So reserves can be either proven or probable, a bit like the top two. And then resources can be um, actually measured resources. This is on a larger scale or just uh, indicated that they're probably there but haven't actually been quantified in any way. Uh, I'm just going to be talking using the uh, oil and gas terminology um, uh, in the next stage. So here are the data for uh, the UK for oil and gas. Uh, looking at those reserves, and, and you know, just to show that there are real numbers behind the figures, here are the numbers that can be extracted from essentially it's a DTI website. Um, and what we've got is the reserves, and what I've, I've put here is uh, reserves in terms of uh, proven plus, plus probable, the, the first two Ps, which is fairly common. And uh, we can then look at the, the uh, production from those reserves, so that's this, this next line here, and the rate of consumption, and where the numbers are in red, the consumption is greater than the, the uh, production. So here we are being... Uh, importers of oil, and here we are importers of, of gas. Now you can then do a calculation which is to work out the reserves to production ratio, which very crudely is how long it would last. Now everybody said, oh no, the reserves production ratio is, is, uh, is quite different because of course the new reserves will be found and um, uh, the rate of production will change, etc. Yes, I know that, but this number gives you a rough idea. The way I like to think about it is, you know, you're, you're on a desert island, you've already walked three times around the desert island and you've identified all the fruit trees, 
and you've got a pile of, uh, you know, 150 fruits, and you're eating five a day, and you can work out that's going to last you a month. Okay, you might find a few more fruit trees, and you might go down to eating two of these fruits a day, but you know, you can be pretty sure it's not going to last you two years. Um, that pile, you might, you might eke it out for two months, maybe even three, but um, order of magnitude, you've got a month left. Uh, and that's what this tells us. So order of magnitude, 20 years, coming down to 10, maybe up to 15. Why are the numbers going up here? Because we're actually getting it out a bit slower. Um, why was there a sudden drop around uh, um, uh, about the, the late 1990s in our reserves to production ratio of gas? Because we had this so-called dash for gas where we converted a lot of electricity production to gas and effectively, it was, it was straightforward. We were burning through our gas, quite literally, a whole lot faster. And uh, it meant it was going to run out in, in around about a few years' time. We might eke it out till 2020, but it's, it really is not going to be any longer. So that's where we are on the UK scale. You could look at it a different way. The, the top line on the graph is the total amount of uh, gas uh, from the UK sector uh, that has been ever found, looking back over 30 years. The black bit is the amount that we've already produced. What you can see is that that top line is, is pretty well static, and here we are, we've got most of it out now. There's a little bit left, but not a huge amount. So on a local scale, we're certainly into scarce resources. How are we on a global scale? There are various different figures for uh, the reserves and the production worldwide of oil, gas, and even more difficult for coal, but looking across the hydrocarbons, um, different sources uh, for the numbers, but broadly speaking, the reserves to production ratio for coal of the order of 40 years, for gas of the order of 60, for coal, a um, little bit harder to get exact numbers, but you know, of the order of 150 years. So as far as all of these three are concerned, on the 500-year timescale, forget them. You know, they're just not going to be there. Um, so what's the solution? Um, as far as energy is concerned, there are really, I believe, only two solutions. One, one is nuclear and the other is renewables. I've got nothing against nuclear whatsoever. I just happen to work more in the <laughs> renewables sector. So what I'd like to do is just say a little bit now about what's happening uh, around the UK in the renewables sector. Um, and uh, I have a particular interest in the so-called marine renewables, which is uh, wind, wave, and tidal. Um, that, you know, we're lucky that we live on an island, we're surrounded by water, uh, it's, it's also fairly windy in this part of the world, uh, and so there are a variety of resources that, that we can exploit there. I'm not actually going to say anything about wave power. Um, that's very exciting in that potentially out there there is a huge resource, but nobody has really come up with uh, a realistic way of extracting power from the waves yet. Um, so it's the earliest of, of 
it's earlier stage of these three technologies. So I'm just going to say a little bit about uh, wind and uh, about tidal. So this is a plot of uh, wind speed around the UK. Um, and the, uh, the brighter the colour, the higher the speed. And what you can see is the further you go away from the coast, the higher the wind speeds you get. So it's worth going offshore to get those higher wind speeds. The other thing is that the wind blows more steadily uh, offshore. Uh, essentially, it's less turbulent. And so it's a more useful resource. So there are good reasons to go offshore. What's happening? Um, the early stages of the developments around the UK uh, were fairly small developments up to about uh, 60 turbines and where the red arrows are here these are sites that have already been developed around the UK. Most people are not aware of this because of course we don't see windmills offshore. People moan about windmills on their favourite hilltop but they don't see them offshore so they don't complain about them. Um, and These sites have already been developed um, there are um, over 400 offshore turbines around the UK and they have an installed power of about um, one and a half gigawatts. Uh, just to put it in context, the average UK consumption of electricity is about 45 gigawatts. So the installed power is, is a thirtieth of that, but the wind doesn't blow all the time. Actually, the average power output from all of these is, is somewhere near a half a gigawatt. So at the moment, we're getting about 1% of our power from offshore wind, from these relatively small developments. The, the, the future that is seen is that there'll be much larger developments further offshore. The colour scheme isn't very good, but it's these uh, pale pink areas that uh, are the proposed areas for development. Much bigger sites, further offshore, higher wind speeds, uh, actually easier to develop these, these larger sites. The particular locations are chosen uh, partly because they're areas where there's reasonably shallow water, which makes it um, slightly easier for the engineering. Um, and the, the future in about the next 20 years or so is that we should be able to develop about uh, 6,000 turbines offshore which will generate, in round terms, about 20% of, of the UK's electrical power. The devices that are being installed at the moment, this is an onshore device, this is a 5 megawatt turbine, but it's actually an onshore installation of the type of device that's used offshore. Um, uh, this is the standard device that is going offshore now, um, delivering 5 megawatts. Uh, the diameter of the rotor is 124 meters. That's it compared to uh, an international football pitch. Uh, these are seriously big structures. Um, so uh, you know the, the, these are rather silly letters that you read in the paper about the you know that wind power is no use. It just delivers you know Mickey Mouse amounts of energy. Complete rubbish. Um, you know these are very big, serious engineering installations that are delivering significant amounts of power and are going to be a, actually a vital part of our uh, power sources in the future. Because remember, you know, that oil and gas stuff that I was talking about earlier, that, that's going to have had it in a few years' time. This stuff is there for forever, for all practical purposes. So this is where the future lies, this and, and um, nuclear. 
Um, just a little bit about tidal stream. Um, there are two ways you can exploit the tides. You can either exploit the fact that uh, the, the tides make the water go up and down, and you can impound the water at high tide and let it out at low tide. Um, and uh, there is one scheme that exploits that uh, in France, and, and that's what people talk about when they're, they're talking about the, um, the, the seven barrage. The other possibility is to exploit the velocity of the tides, and that's the area that I'm interested in. And we have extremely good resources, uh, tidal resources around the UK. Um, again, um, a, a map from the DTI of the resources. The yellow areas are the areas where the peak flow is more than about two meters a second. And that's more than enough to be able to develop the, the tidal resources. And you can see that they're concentrated in various hot spots around the coast. So, uh, for instance, you get high tidal flows in narrow gaps between two bits of land. You get high flows around corners, that the flow is accelerated around the corner. And you get high flows in certain estuaries, of which the, the, the seven estuary is the, is the most famous, where there, there are resonance effects um, that amplify the, the, the flow of the, the, uh, the water. There are some sites that you can't completely categorize, for instance, this, this area here, um, that's partly a flow between um, uh, two, two bits of land, partly it's a, it's a headland effect. So there are multiple effects going on. But there are a number of hot spots around the UK. The one that everybody likes to talk about is the Pentland Firth, where the um, typical maximum flow is about four meters a second. And if you bear in mind that, to a first approximation, the, the power that you can extract from the tide is proportional to the cube of the velocity, so at four meters a second, you can get eight times as much as at two meters a second. So that looks extremely attractive. And a lot of the developers are uh, talking about going to, to use the, the Pentland Firth. Uh, my belief is that they're completely mad because the Pentland Firth is an unbelievably harsh environment. Um, and actually, we need to learn to walk before we run. And exploiting some of these rather less aggressive sites um, first would be, be much wiser. Um, just a little bit about some of the devices that are being suggested to exploit the, those flows. There's devices that look a bit like underwater windmills. Um, there are devices that look, again, a bit like windmills, but uh, have some sort of ducting system to channel the flow um, uh, through the, the, uh, the turbine, uh, accelerate the flow through the turbine. Um, and uh, one of the projects that we're undertaking in, in Oxford actually is, is looking at whether it's worth doing this, and um, actually it's not. So, um, which has been a bit of a disappointment to some developers. Um, then there are other devices. I'm actually involved in the development of this device, which is um, called the transverse, uh, uh, sorry, uh, thought, transverse horizontal axis water turbine. Um, this is a device specifically devised to work at very large scale in slightly lower velocities. 
but I'll, I'll not go into that in more detail. There are devices which, rather than rotating, uh, uh, flap up and down in some way. Um, a few people are promoting those. I'm not entirely convinced they're going to work. And there are some what can only be classified as weird and wonderful devices, which I'm quite certain won't work. Ultimately, if, if you're working offshore, you've got to keep things pretty simple. And I think the, the candidate devices that, that you know, will end up being successful are the simple propeller-type devices and, I hope, the uh, simple transverse flow device. Just because a resource is renewable doesn't mean that it isn't scarce. And if we just go back here, you can see that you can't just put tidal devices everywhere. There are only certain areas where you can um, exploit the tides. And we have to understand how to do that. And so we've been carrying out research on what happens when you actually put the devices in the water, how that affects the flow. And here you can see a fairly idealized picture of the accelerated flow past a headland. So I hope you can just see the little arrows. And you can see the highest flow is, is just off this headland. So we get this acceleration effect. So here's a good place to put the, the devices. And then here's a model of what happens if you do put devices in this area uh, and start extracting energy. Well, of course, what happens is you slow the flow down through the devices. And what does the flow do? It just goes round round the sides. Uh, so that's not much use. So what you have to do is understand the interaction of the device with the flow. You can't just assume that the flow will keep going through there once you start taking energy out. And importantly, you've got to understand that at various different scales. You can't just look uh, in detail at, at a small problem. So we're now moving on to building larger models. This is just a, a preliminary uh, numerical model of the seven estuary, uh, which will be used to look at the interactions between uh, extracting energy uh, using um, tidal stream devices in certain parts of the, the estuary with what could happen elsewhere. So for instance, the candidate sites where you'd want to uh, put tidal stream devices are mainly fairly well downstream here, uh, whereas the candidate sites for a, for a barrier are, are well upstream. Uh, you might want to do both, but you would certainly want to know how they interact. Um, so we need to understand this scarce resource, even though it's a renewable resource, it's still a scarce resource that we need to understand. I'm not at all an expert on, on the mineral side of, of scarce resources, but I thought I'd just give a very quick take before handing on to, to Tony to talk in, in more detail. Um, there was a fairly high profile article in New Scientist about three years or so ago, uh, which highlighted uh, various um, minerals that um, are getting scarce and essentially what this this plot shows is these bars are showing in fact straightforwardly the reserves to production ratio just as for, for the oil or, or gas and the length of the bar depends on how long we've got now what you can't see there is the the scale the scale is logarithmic this is 10 years this is a hundred years this is a thousand years um, and what you can see is there are quite a number of important materials where the sort of time scale 
that uh, we've got on the reserves to production ratio is of the order of a few decades. So we have similar problems with minerals as we have with, with oil and gas. Now, the, there are some serious issues that Tony will go into about actually uh, why this might be uh, a, a very distorted view, uh, and that's particularly related to what you actually call the, the resource. Um, but, you know, it just begins to build up the picture that uh, maybe there are other materials that we need to worry about how long they're, they're going to last. Perhaps more importantly, um, it's not just about how much they, there is, but where they are. So um, you won't be able to see the, the, these different, uh, the captions on the different materials, but just look at the distribution of some of these important minerals. And note the virtual absence of them in Europe. Um, you know, they come from um, places uh, that maybe we don't exert huge amounts of influence over. Um, and places that may not necessarily be the most reliable source of supply. Um, in particular, you know, there's very large resources in China. The fact that these are appearing here may be to do with the economics of what we're choosing to exploit rather than what is there. But the distribution around the world is, is important. Let me just pick out... Um, couple of examples, well, one example in particular. For instance, phosphates needed, essential for modern agriculture. Um, and these are materials that effectively we use and throw away. Uh, they're, not, it, they're not recyclable in any way. Um, the reserves to production ratio there is, is such that it looks as if, you know, we've got of the order of multiple decades supply of that. Where does it come from? Mostly at the moment, you know, Morocco and China. That's what our agriculture depends on, what Western agriculture depends on. Interesting thought. Uh, the EU recently did a review on some, some key materials um, that it... Um, that are used, source materials. And then in the back of that report, it's a very interesting table of many different uh, minerals and, and uh, uh, other materials um, that we need, and a percentage of how much of those is imported into the EU and where they come from. Now, I've not copied the whole table. I just picked out a few lines from the table of some surprising numbers. And, you know, there's a lot of these materials where we're importing uh, either all of it or most of it to the EU um, that's used in the EU is imported. Let's just uh, look at one or two of them. Uh, you know, cobalt. We import everything on cobalt. 41% comes from the De Democratic Republic of Congo. Not noted for stability. Um, some other bizarre ones. Um, limestone. Why are we importing two-thirds of the limestone from China? It's very odd. You know, there's sustainability issues around that. Uh, magnesium, 100% imported, 56% of it from China. Some of these, I think, are rather startling figures. Uh, rare earth elements. 
mostly using the high-tech industry. All imported, 90%, 97% from China. I'm not an expert in this area. Um, uh, these sorts of numbers frighten me a bit. So that's why I asked Tony to come along as well and tell us a bit more about it. I'm very pleased to be here and uh, I'll try and explain a little bit about minerals and metals uh, that I've picked up over the sort of 30 years that I've been uh, in the industry. And uh, what I really want to point out through the, the talk, and, and not necessarily in a sequential way, but, but there definitely is an increase in the demand that we have. Uh, some materials we describe as strategic, important, critical, whatever you want to call it. And then I say, well, are we running out of those supplies? I'll, I'll investigate that question make the connections to environmental management, the problems of resource constraints and nationalism, and, and perhaps suggest some ways forward. And I will try and do that quickly because we want to have some time for discussion afterwards. So, okay, over early hominids didn't have a very big footprint on the ground. They, whatever they had at the start of the year, they finished at the end of the year, and, and there weren't very many of them either. But now, uh, modern Western, we produce... Uh, we use a lot more inputs into our, into our existence, and these are numbers per capita. So I'm not suggesting that the modern Westerner excretes three tonnes a year of material, but, but we do waste and we throw away material uh, of those sorts of volumes. How does that look in a, in a, in a different uh, uh, form? Uh, as Professor Holsby showed there, I, this, this is a more sort of traditional split of materials into biomass, fuels... Uh, industrial minerals and, and metallic minerals. And this is the history from 1980 up to approximately present time, from about 38 uh, billion tonnes per year up to 60 in that 25 years. And projections over the next 25 years are further increases in, in all of those materials. So demand is, is, is definitely increasing. This is a, another schematic produced these last three slides are all from an Austrian organisation called Siri. Uh, and, and if anybody wants any information on the information in the programme at the end, contact me and I'll, I'll try and, and make the connections for you. But this is really another demonstration, not over time scale, uh, as Professor Holsby said, but, but geographically. <coughs> this, is, this is from 2000, but you, know, you might find that it's interesting that Oceania has the biggest consumption per capita, but... We must remember that in Australia they extract a lot of materials, so if you divide the materials extracted by the people there, it becomes quite high. So they don't necessarily consume all that internally, some of that's shipped to the rest of the world. But there is an imbalance over time and an imbalance ge geographically. If we look at how that uh, changes uh, on, on a graphical form, uh, here is the world average here is Oceania, here is, is Asia and Africa. So as the, the level of affluence increases there, obviously with the large populations, that's going to shift the world average up significantly. This is another sort of representation of the same sort of thing, but this is a Japanese presentation of the periodic table. It's the total materials required per tonne of element. So to produce iron, we move, the, the materials moved to produce that. 
is about eight tons, whereas for gold, it's about a million tons. So, so those are the relative material rucksacks per element. If we look at that in a slightly different way, this axis is, is how much we produce. So the only uh, element that we produce a, million, a billion tons of, the only metallic element we produce a billion tons of, is, is iron or steel. Uh, but we only, we, only generate, we only process eight tons per ton of that material. So we, it's a big volume, but a relatively small tonnage of material moved. Whereas gold, where we said it was a, a million tons per ton produced, but we only produce a thousand tons a year. So that's an interesting presentation of, for the different elements. Uh, you'll probably guess by my presentation that I'm a, a metallurgist or a material scientist by origin, so I, I am a, a little bit over-focused on, on metals, but that's because Professor Holsby did the uh, fuel stuff before, so I, I feel justified in doing that. And metals or materials are an important part in, in social development, uh, and if, if, if we look at how society's progressed, initially, of course, we, were all, we measured this in terms of uh, improvements in materials, and improvements that these materials gave us, usually militarily, over people that had the, the uh, previous uh, technologies. It's interesting that one of iron's uh, advantages is that there are iron deposits over most parts of the world, so actually availability of iron wasn't a limiting factor in development of many economies. If we go back in the timescale, not quite the uh, geological eras that uh, Professor Holsby was talking about, but to, to Roman times, perhaps they were the first people to come to Britain in terms of uh, looking for resources. Uh, they probably came looking for copper, which the, but by the time they got to Wales, the Phoenicians had taken most of the copper away. So they ended up, actually, lead was a principal export from Britain for, for the Roman Empire. So, Strategic metals, strategic materials, what are they? Well, they are things that are important either for military or economic reasons or a combination of both. They're materials that are not readily available in your own backyard and there may be concerns over the security of supply. And why might shortages occur? Because, as we saw earlier, as the population increases the, and the level of affluence increases, there's a twofold uh, pressure on the uh, volumes of materials that are used. And also, as political blocks become uh, looking at each other's behaviour, and as China has become a stronger economy, people are beginning to say, well, will primary supplies be limited? Will there be an equal equitable distribution of resources? Uh, and may there be national or corporate uh, control of certain resources? So the EU said, okay, let's have a look at the materials that we need in the, U in the, U in, in the European Union. And they produced quite a large report in 2010, uh, which is well worth looking at. It's a big source of, uh, of information. And they defined what they called 14 materials, uh, but that's if you count platinum group metals and rare earth metals as one. Uh, they are, they're not, but... Uh, so there are 14 types of material that they classified as critical. How do they define critical? It was a, a, a combination of economic importance and supply risk. 
And we don't really have time to go into how they define those. It's, it's in the report. But these are the 14, and these are sort of fairly arbitrary uh, demarcation of those materials. So rare earths have been in the, in the news a lot uh, because there's a very high supply risk. Economic importance is, is high, not so high, but the supply risk is high. Uh, something like niobium, there's only a couple of places in the world, primarily most of it is actually coming from Brazil. Uh, so there's a supply issue and, uh, and it's relatively high economic importance. So the EU has, has woken up, as Professor Holby said, to, to uh, the reliance on external supplies for important materials. Uh, but also they realise, well, if there are other economies using these materials, there's going to be price increases and, and possibly that will impact on the uh, viability of European uh, industry. What I would like to just have as a, say as a, uh, an aside here is we don't necessarily know the value of these materials to the European economy because we measure the ore or the metals that we import, but we don't measure the invisible imports of these materials. There are rare earth metals in, in the phones, in the, in the magnets, in, in other imports that we have that we don't actually uh, take account of. And you'll see a little bit further in my, in my presentation where they end up. So, uh, you see, when you steal information from other people, you often end up having the same information on the side. But, but for me, there'll be a little bit of a thread through my talk. Copper is a, is a metal that I use as an example, not because it's a critical material, but because we've had a, a long experience, 7,000 7, years of producing it. And on, on this list here, it, it, as Professor Holby said, it measures the resource base and the annual consumption, current annual consumption, and projects uh, lifetimes. And for copper, I believe, if they project with the current consumption rate, it's something like 68 years. But if average global consumption increased to half of the rate of uh, American consumption, then it reduces down to about 18 years. But I, I, I want to, I, don't, I think we don't have a problem of running out of materials and I'll try and explain why in the next few slides. The, this is the reserve base. So people measure reserves and reserve base. Reserves are what is economic to be exploited now, and they measure it and they infer it from their programs. But it's not in the economic interests of a, a, a commercial company to explore more than they need for the next few years. So they will never actually uh, declare more than a certain amount of reserves. As long as they have, they declare what the information that they need to show their stakeholders that they are viable for the next two, couple of years, then they don't need to prove more materials. And as Professor Holsby said, if the price starts to go up, material that was sub-economic becomes economic, so the reserves increase. And if we look for other materials, then we find that it's more materials come into. So if you look at back historically over the reserve base, although we keep producing more and more materials, usually the amount of years' reserves available remains the same. Now, there's a difference there between oil and fossil fuels and minerals. And I'll explain a couple of reasons why I think that is. 
this is a typical distribution of, of, uh, for, for different types of minerals. In the early exploration, we've used the high-grade ores. We take the, the highest grade, the lower, where we can make the most money, and, and where simple technology can produce viable uh, uh, production. But as those reserves get worked out, we, we exploit lower and lower grade ores. And as you work those lower and low grade ores, you, you, there, there is more and more of it available, but it's much harder to extract. And it's much more costly in terms of energy and total material required. So it's not an availability problem, but it's the cost in terms of environment, energy, that will continue to increase. And I can illustrate this with copper. So copper production has gone up from about uh, 5 million to 15 million tonnes a year in the last uh, 70 years. And the grade of copper exploited was about 2% in 1930. When I studied extractive metallurgy, it was about 1%, and everybody said, oh, you can't go below 1%. Now they're extracting less than half a percent copper. What's that mean? In terms of the volume of material extracted, it's got to go up because although the grade's been going down, we're producing more and more. So we have to shift more and more material. That's just the copper ore shown there. It's also the overburden and all the other material associated with the mine. This is an illustration of the actual grades of copper uh, produced uh, over the last... Uh, this was in 2009. This is underground mines, where you can see grades as high as 3%, uh, probably down to about 1%, or even slightly lower. These are open pit mines, that, which are more like quarries and can be exploited in bulk. And you can see they're being exploited at, at copper levels of down to 0.25%. So that's a combination of economies of scale and low-cost uh, extraction techniques, as meant that the reserve base, the, the uh, available material, has increased. So I'd now like to say, well, what are, if we have a constraint on supply of materials, what can we do to get over that? We can identify new deposits, new explore for more materials. And funny enough, we haven't done much exploration in, in the UK in the last 50 years because we've gone elsewhere to look for minerals. So there are parts of the UK that are not very well defined in terms of uh, uh, exploration. We can try and find alternates. If, if rare earths become expensive, can we use something else? Or we can try and look at recovering more of the materials that we use. Uh, and, and in all those processes, the knowledge of science, uh, of, of, of material science is critical. I'm gonna quickly go through each of those phases. New resources. There's plans to open a new tungsten mine in Hemmerden. Uh, it's not a British company that's developing it, it's an Australian company. But it, it's going to be of the sort of scale that was, would be a world-class mine. So probably 10 to 15% of the world's tungsten requirement would be produced from that mine. So that would reduce the European uh, reliance on export, uh, on, on imports from, from uh, uh, places like China. The question is, will we give planning permission to do it? Will we uh, uh, have the technology and, and, and the resources to do it? Material is there uh, if we choose to extract it. Cornwall traditionally has produced tin and, and copper, and as the prices of tin and copper go up, there are you know, redevelopment and re-examinations of those deposits. 
and even of the uh, ancient deposits at Anglesey. And, and some of these more exotic elements, like lithium, rare earths, and so on, we didn't look for those before, but often they're associated with some of these other elements. And so there are examinations in the southwest now to look at uh, recovering some of these materials. Substitution, it's a great idea. If, if you haven't got any cobalt, chuck something else in, but it isn't quite that simple because the, the cobalt has special properties that mean why you chose it in the first place. So if you're going to look for substitutes, you have to have a 5 or 10 or 15 year research program to do that. Uh, people like the Japanese have the foresight to do that. Uh, unfortunately, in Europe, we don't uh, have that sort of timescale thinking. Recovering and recycling. If you take one thing away from this presentation that I'm doing, I hope you will understand the difference between minerals and, and fossil fuels. When we, when we use metals, we don't consume them. We utilise them. Because at the end of life, most of that material is available to recover and reuse. If we design the product well in the first place and we manage it well at the end of life, a high proportion of the material is available. And it's a strong reason for us to, to reuse that because to reprocess it uses a lot less energy than primary production. And I'll, I'll emphasise that point as we go further. So let's try and maximise the, the, the recovery and recycling. This is, a, uh, I believe, a German guy, or could be Austrian. But he, this diagram I've stolen from him, metals like gold, we don't, when you use gold, you don't degrade it, and it's, it's there to be recycled and reused. <coughs> Steel, okay, maybe at the surface you have a bit of corrosion, so you lose some. But of the 1.4 billion tonnes of steel produced in the world every year, nearly 50% of it is from scrap. So already we're having a high recycling rate of, uh, of, uh, for steel. Some metals, like magnesium or zinc, there may be a higher consumption rate during the utilisation phase. But what we've done up to now is we haven't recovered these materials to recycle them. We've got to do that better. This is, is if you like, the, what I talked about, the um, supply chain, all coming in, processed into metal, goes into fabrication, goes into use, at the end of use, it's either discarded or if we do it better, it's recycled here. Uh, we can recycle it in the use phase, we can have a, a refurbishment and reuse of a component, and we can recycle during the fabrication stage. If we maximise all of these, we can minimise this, and so we minimise the requirement for this. This is a, a, a publication from the International Resource Panel. Uh, Tom Gridell, uh, the professor from, uh, from, from Yale, uh, has been working in this area for many years. If you look at this, this key here, these metals, 50% of production is, is from recycling. Now, probably the common thing between them is that these tend to be the older metals, the metals that have been around for some time. Uh, if you look at these metals that are recycled less than 1%, they're things like tantalum, some of the rare earths, they've been in use in, in society for a lot less time. So there's a less material in stock and we've got less practice at how to recover and reuse them. We have to be smarter how we design so that we can do that better. Copper. This is, uh, this is the volume of copper production in green. 
got increasing up to 16 million tonnes from the from year 1900. This is the, uh, this is the, the actual price and this is the uh, 1998 adjusted price. So you can see, for most metals, actually the price of metal has gone down over time. If you look at it in real terms, it's only in the last couple of years where we've had this economic boom that the price has actually increased above the 1998 value. And that's typical for most metals. And the point I want to make here on this slide, since, uh, although we've been producing copper for 7,000 years, probably in the first, uh, for the first 6,900 tonnes of a year, we produced a total of 10 million tonnes. Since then, we produced 550 million tonnes. And for the first 50 years of the last century, we averaged 1.4 million tonnes a year. In the next 50 years, 6.5 million tonnes per year. And from 2000 to 2009, nearly 15. Projected demand, if, if we carry on the, the trend, is to be 30 to 45 million tonnes a year. So why should we be concerned about this? If, if the UK doesn't invest <coughs> in geological mining and mineral processing knowledge, we will lose that. Uh, we've lost a lot of metal production capability uh, and, and reduced capacity in other areas. Uh, I see Rio Tinto Zinc are planning or, or to sell the aluminium smelter in Northumberland now after having closed the one at Anglesey. So there are reductions in the, the material produced in the UK. Now if we do that uh, because of, of economic reasons, it's one thing. If we do it for environmental legislation reasons and then that metal is produced somewhere else but with worse, worse emissions, then it's not really very sensible. And materials have a high added value. Uh, if you look at the actual value of the materials themselves, the ores and the metals, maybe not. But they may be a low part of the uh, a total economic uh, turnover. But if you look at what they enable, the, the products they enable, the aerospace, the high-tech applications, then, uh, and, and here's an example for nickel. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of rushing through here to give us a little bit of time to talk at the end. But my, my, my feeling is, unless we address all parts of that supply chain that I described earlier, we can't just focus on one element of it. It's not just a question of materials availability. We have to know how to process it and how to manage it and how to design it. Uh, we have to look at the whole life cycle. And particularly so if we're going to have a green economy, because if we're going to build wilderness everywhere with gearless drives, we're going to use a lot of rare earth metal. So, uh, we better be uh, sure that we can have access to those. Why I want to look at uh, recycling is, is, is shown on this graph here. If you look at the amount of energy taken to produce primary metal to secondary metal, you can see the differences here for many metals and even here for some non-metals. Uh, if, if we penalise a primary producer for producing aluminium uh, on, based on their CO2 emissions, we should give credit to a secondary producer who is producing aluminium at a much lower uh, CO2 emission. If we do that, we will encourage recycling and, in, in, and bring down the, the average emissions for that production of that metal. You've all probably seen, uh, know about life cycle thinking, but by, if we need to consider life cycle thinking through the design phase of everything we produce, we have to design things with the idea of 
making recycling possible at the end of life. If we do that, we have a chance of reducing our carbon footprint for all the products that we produce. Uh, and just quickly, I want to show again a difference between approach between Japan and, and Europe. This is a traditional method of, of processing battery scrap where you can recover certain parts of the materials, but only a relatively small amount. If you invest in, in, in research, you, you've got the potential to develop a, a wider range of, of materials and recover a higher proportion of, the, of those materials. And, and I think Europe has to think of its secondary sources as, as an important part of their economy. We need to go from an economic base where we process materials once and dispose of it, recycling only li a limited amount, to one where we recycle and reuse most materials and we only produce primary material to replace the small amount that we can't reuse or recycle. And this is nearly the end now. Uh, it's not just, for me, it's not just a technical answer to this, and as I understand the, the purpose of these discussions is to look at interdisciplinary uh, opportunities and, and, and ideas. If we don't begin to change the way we think about society and think about the way we handle and process and use materials, I mean, how many of us really want to use a, a reconditioned uh, piece of equipment? We want to buy the latest thing, we want to buy the newest thing. Uh, but if, if we really want to, to, to reduce our carbon footprint, we have to be, uh, change the way of thinking and, and have a, a long um, systems and materials that last for extended life where, that are capable of being reused or repaired, upgraded, without just throwing it away or buying the latest phone because it's got a few more jingles on it. And, and this is the last slide. So if we, if we don't do that, this is from a United Nations uh, uh, publication. The, things are, uh, the pressures of increased population, natural disasters, environmental degradation, and these other factors are all likely to lead to environmentally, in, environmentally induced conflict. Uh, and I think that's the same sort of conclusion as Professor Holsby uh, came to earlier because of unequal access to the resources uh, across the globe. I'm, I'm sorry that I had to rush through that a bit, but uh, my contact details are there. I'm very happy to sort of continue the discussions and uh, uh, either electronically or, or, or today. Unfortunately, I have to shoot off to a meeting in London uh, this evening uh, just after five, so, uh, but I'm, I'm perfectly happy to take questions now. Thank you very much. Thank you.